0: You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray.
1: And I'm Glenn Langenberg.
0: All right, Glenn, uh, my trivia thing for today is, what is Michael J. Fox's middle name? It's actually a question for you.
1: You know, I've never heard this. I, I have no idea. Please, please do tell. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping something great like Jehoshaphat or Jeremiah or just something crazy.
0: Uh, no, um, uh, surprisingly, his middle name is Andrew. Um <laughs> <laughs> He, <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, you know what? I, I'm going to take a stab at this. I'm going to guess that in the Actors Guild, that name yes. was already taken, and so he had to come up yes. with something else. Insert the middle name, and he took his dad's name or something.
0: Uh, oh, close. Uh, it's just, he, you know, exactly it. Uh, um, Michael Fox was a character actor that was in Westerns through the 50s and 60s and Falcon Crest and a bunch of other movies and TV shows over the years. So his first thought was, okay, I'll just go by Michael A. Fox. And that didn't quite sound right to him because, um, you know, uh, who knows if he would have gone as far as Michael A. Fox. Um, I guess Vivica A. Fox turned out just fine um, over the years with the same issue. but uh, um, And also, since he is from Edmonton, uh, he didn't want any jokes about, uh, you know, those Canadians, eh? Uh, so he'd be Michael E. Fox. Um, <laughs> okay. So he just uh, picked J as uh, as an initial instead as a kind of common uh, middle initial. Um, Interesting. All right. So that's the little factoid for today. Anyway, how you been?
1: I've been good, sir. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. I, I just got uh, off of a uh, uh, phone call this morning with the California Friction Ridge Group uh their, oh yeah that's right yeah and uh gave a little talk about um uh, some stuff i'm working on with photoshop and how the examiners can can use photoshop in new and exciting ways to do markups and enhancements and record uh analysis documentation and and conclusions and all sorts of stuff so i'm excited how that went and and uh, hope to uh to have more information out for uh, listeners of the podcast uh, uh, here soon as well.
1: Yeah, you know, that, that's something I'm not sure we've talked about in the past, about the California Friction Ridge Study Group. Uh, it wouldn't wouldn't have probably hurt to just make a quick shout out to them that this is this monthly group that gets together, but they usually have someone come in through a webcast and present for them, and they have all these people that come in. It's it's a free thing that they offer, but I'd be curious if other people would want to reach out and join that and listen to some of those, because they have really good presenters and really good topics uh, that, that they cover.
0: Yeah, um, and uh, they usually have uh, Chelsea Shine with uh, CIGIS, FBI CGIS, come on and give a little update on how NGI is doing. And, um, you know, for all examiners, you know, looking for just big picture questions and answers from, uh, from that group, um, I, I don't have handy the contact information for uh, getting uh, involved with that. But I know it's mostly examiners in California, but I, I know that there are uh, a number of examiners across the whole country uh, that, uh, that call in every month as well.
1: Right. Uh, in fact, I'm just going to throw this out because the contact I've always used is Lori Orr. And that's yes. L-O-R-I, Lori, O-R-R, and it's Lori, L-O-R-I, dot O-R-R, at D-O-J, dot C-A, dot gov, G-O-V. So anyone could shoot her an email and uh, ask to get on her mailing and find out more about uh Getting involved in the California Friction Ridge.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it really is a good thing it, it, that they're doing out there, and uh, kudos to California DOJ for um, for organizing and and uh, and and you know keeping that going for. I think today they said it's their fifty third meeting, um, so it's been going for a few years now. Cool.
1: You know, and they're always looking for speakers, too. So if there's someone that has someone, yes. you know, that they want to share, that would be a great venue to, to get out there. It's cool because it's a webcast. And you're not in front of a bunch of people. If you're nervous about public speaking, you can just basically give a presentation, talk over it, and answer a few questions at the end. It, it really is a great format just to put something very informal out there to share with uh, fingerprint examiners.
0: Or if you're, say, you know, doing a test run for the big conference uh, over the summer. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And you kind of want to, want to see how things go.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> All right, Glenn, uh, anything else before we get to our guest?
1: No, let's uh, let's talk about our guest, though. We have a very special guest today. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I made a promise I wasn't sure we'd be able to fulfill, but we were able to. I'd <laughs> like to throw those out there. Uh, I had said we should get Alicia Wilcox on here to talk about her research with juries and uh, Alicia is a an assistant professor at Husson Husen Huson University and that's in Bangor Maine and Eric when whenever Bangor comes up what do you think of
0: well instantly it, it's you know doors to other dimensions and and scary clowns and and monsters that that uh, come out of shower drains and and all things Stephen King right um Thank you, Sai, and be aware of men in yellow coats.
1: Yeah, as it is known, Bangor, Maine is believed to be the inspiration for the town of Derry. If you've ever read a Stephen King book, almost all of them are set somewhere or have some Maine connection, and they'll mention the town of Derry, certainly a featured in it and many of his other books, but Bangor is basically. <laughs> non-fictional dairy so <laughs> that's anyway she's a prof- an assistant professor there and uh, she teaches forensic science uh, courses within the forensic science program and criminal justice courses and she used to be a latent print examiner for the Maine state police laboratory system so she has this latent print background but is also an academia and a researcher so we'd like to welcome our guest now hello alicia how are you Hi, how are you? Excellent, thank you. And would it be appropriate to call you Dr. Wilcox or should we just stick with Alicia?
2: Alicia would be perfect.
1: okay. well Alicia uh,
0: <laughs> Jeez, I gotta get on things talking with two doctors here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well uh, Alicia, uh, it, you know you and I met uh, what last year or so and we, we've been able to talk a little bit about your research. I want to uh, first just get you to be able to talk a little bit about what you're currently doing, and then we'll get into your background as a latent print examiner, and we'll talk about your research a little bit. So if you could, what are you doing right now, and uh, how how is it in the academic setting?
2: So I am at the moment knee-deep in grading undergraduate work. We, I only have another few <laughs> weeks before the end of the semester, which for us, we started early this year ends on. April 30th and I'm not counting the days or anything so <laughs> um I have my eyes peeled on a couple of the NIJ um research grants oh yeah uh, uh,
1: this is the time right now it's the season
2: for grants it is it's this grant season which is really a horrible season coinciding with the end of the academic year but however that's uh that's what I'm up to so Given the research that I finished at the end of 2016 on the jurors, it's been a nice little break just to take a deep breath and read up on some of the new research that's come out since then. Uh Uh, But I would like to continue on and do a little bit more with, with, with this research. So for the moment, that's what I'm doing, seeking some grant funding and kind of narrowing my focus for my next research Perfect. Endeavor.
1: Perfect. Uh, and if you should get awarded any of those grants and you need some fingerprint examiners or some resources, I'm sure Eric and I would be very willing to help out, provide images or any other things you might need to conduct studies if that should become part of it.
2: Thank you. That's great. Uh,
1: so, OK, so you're you're teaching right now and dealing with... Uh, students in the in in the university system but prior to that Mm -hmm. you were a latent fingerprint examiner so uh listeners by now might have detected a slight accent on your part and uh be curious about how you came over here (laughs) and how you got involved in fingerprints and what's your story morning glory
2: so i have an undergraduate degree in chemistry and statistics from the National University of Ireland. That's where I did my undergraduate degree. That's where I'm from. It's where my mom and dad are still in Dublin. Uh, I went straight after college to do a master's degree in forensic science, long before there were any of those cool shows on TV. Uh, I thought it would be a a good career for me because I really love science. I like to work by myself and have quiet time, but I'm also quite a like communicating too. So those two together, I thought, wouldn't that be neat, explaining things to the police and to jurors? So I headed down that path. I went to the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. Oh, yeah. It was my first first choice. Yeah. And I graduated there in 2001 and worked for a short period of time at the Forensic Science Lab in Dublin, in Ireland. And then I took a position at the Maine State Police Crime Lab in Augusta, Maine. And I had been to the U.S. P- previously. I came the summer I turned 21 and worked as a um, care assistant or a nurse's aide, a CNA at the Hyannis Hospital in Cape Cod. So a lot of back then in the uh, 90s, nineties, uh-huh. uh, a lot of Irish students would come across on what we call J-1 visas, those summer visas for picking up the summer job. So I came over and did that and we did a gang of us, guys and girls, rent a car, and we went up to the Forks in Maine, which is up in the northwest where there's really no town, and we did whitewater rafting. So I had I had been to Maine, so it wasn't like I was flying to a place I'd never been before. And I interviewed uh, a few weeks after, September 11th. I mm-hmm. uh, no, everybody was afraid to fly, but I was no. in my early 20s, and I was not afraid to fly. So I came over, interviewed, and got offered the job. Uh, And I guess the rest is history. I was at the crime lab in Augusta for just about 10 years as a latent print examiner dealing with fingerprints and uh, tire marks and footwear impressions and lots of teaching at the police academy, testifying in court and going to complex crime scenes where they needed special help. We had a we have an evidence response team that does a lot of the evidence collection. They were Fairly new in 2002 when I started, but most of the crime scenes I've been to have been, I think I was at one burglary, one robbery, and the rest have all been homicides.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. That's a very good experience. And when you you started in the laboratory, did you get all of your training then here in the U.S.?
2: I did. So I came out with a college degree, and I have to admit, when I interviewed for The reason I majored in chemistry and statistics, it was around that time in my sophomore year where I chose those two as my double major. I had intended on going into forensic science and I thought, well, I better have statistics because that's where the conclusions are going to end up going. So when I interviewed for the job as a latent print examiner, I was just happy to get a face to face interview. As new graduates know, it's very competitive to get to get that first interview but I wasn't really convinced that fingerprints were unique. So I interviewed and I thought, well, I'll go along with this. And so, so yes, I started there. And Maine has sent all of their latent print examiners to the Canadian Police College. They have. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. They have a very phenomenal. Uh, friction ridge course it was seven weeks when i went there and then i think it's nine weeks now and they do everything from processing and physical and chemical processing to you know photoshop and raw formats and crime scene photography all the way through to making reports for court and testimony it was a phenomenal we called it forensic boot camp uh it was you lived you lived in dorms on the campus uh, you, we had 40 contact hours of classroom time a week it was a lot and then we had homework every night so yeah, it was I, a very very good course
1: i have actually taught there a couple of times uh towards the end there they wanted to bring in statistics and research and have a module on that because you're mm-hmm. right it, it was nine weeks or so but i think they at one point it got it up to maybe 12 weeks or more and uh and i know they're cutting back a little bit now but they were really interested in bringing in that facet and trying to get them trained up on statistics because they could see where this was going as well and thought we need to get our folks at least aware of, of what this is all about. But assuming when you took it, there was a big dichotomy between the uh, English-speaking side of it and French-speaking <laughs> side of it and how it was taught. Uh, I mean, even though they were often taking it together, uh, just the how the, – how the crime scenes are processed and, and the information they get and the, the, how they're challenged in court. very tale of, of two different countries very much within the same country.
2: Okay. Luckily for me, I was in the English-speaking group. There were no French... There was one French teacher, um Canadian police, mounted police officer. He had a strong accent. It was hard to understand. Uh, but I have a funny story from that. The one person that sat near me... I thought he was teasing and copying my accent. So after second week, I found out that he was from Newfoundland. And I guess I never had met anyone from Newfoundland before. They have a slight Irish accent. It sounds like a bit like the west of Ireland. Uh-huh. So I, I, then I was okay with him Up until then, I thought he was a bit of a jerk. <laughs> fake, doing a fake Irish accent.
0: That's pretty good. That's funny. I, I, I guess that's true. I hadn't really heard that, how close that they sound to, to Irish, but so what made you, Alicia, want to leave the the wonderful world of government employment and, um, and get into teaching and uh, private casework?
2: So I never thought I would get bored, but I was itching for something a little bit more. Uh, my boss uh, as a lot of crime I was structured this way, the person above me was a sworn position so I kind of imagined going to the police academy and running around with a gun on my belt and I thought no, that would not be good for me Um, and then of course there's no guarantee to go to the police academy and then you might have to uh, go on patrol somewhere, that sounds scary so I'm not that kind of person so I went back and did a master's degree with the hopes of maybe promoting in within state government and that's where I did my master's degree at Huston University where I work now and made some contacts with the professors. I did fairly well in that master's degree and I suggested to them that if they ever wanted to start a forensic science degree that I would be happy to help and I was having in my mind that I would help them from the lab, I could (coughs) give them documents, suggestions uh, about a year after I made the suggestion I got a phone call from my now boss and he said that there was a job posted and he they'd like me to apply oh. so I did and got got the job uh, and started there in the fall of 2011 and it was a big a big uh, difference a big transition going from being a bench scientist because really as a scientist on the bench, you have a lot of control over your day you and <laughs> kind of structure your day in the morning. I'm going to do this and the afternoon I'm going to do this. And of course, there's phone calls that interrupt and you can get pulled in different directions. And generally when you go home, you're home. So moving from that to academic life was a, was a big transition. And I had to leave a permanent contract to go onto a one year contract. Uh, and I took a, a pay cut so I think, think some people around me thought it was mad. My children were small at the time. I have twins. And at that time, they were three. So it was a good move for me. I was I was not regretting it the summer of 2012 when I had all summer off, which was phenomenal. And I don't think I could ever go back. I, I only work about seven months of the year. <laughs> so... Uh, and I, and I she yeah,
0: convinced yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's been it's been great. Uh the you know, I did miss the casework. I saw some homicides and I didn't know the inside details that first year and I really I had kind of pangs of oh, I wonder, I see them on the news, my colleagues on the news, I wonder what's happening. And then I'd see them go back at nighttime. I said, oh, they must be using Luminol. They're gone back at night. And so I was kind of wondering. And, but the, about a year later, I applied for the PhD program and I got a, an employer identification number and some insurance and started my consulting company. And that's been, it's definitely filled that void. It's kept me current I was keen on keeping my II certifications. Uh, so yeah, it was a very it was a bit of a risky move, I think, at the time, but it was a it's been a great move for me and my career and my family.
1: Do you mainly do consulting in fingerprints or do you also do tire track and footwear or what or what?
2: So I'm open to both. I was talking to Eric earlier and I told him that most of the cases I've worked on have been footwear and tire cases, both Current uh, going to trial and post conviction cases. I have worked plenty of latent print cases, but I think there are a lot of latent print consultants around. So the cases I've worked on have been out of Massachusetts primarily. Hmm. Uh, any of my uh, uh, most of my consulting businesses ha- happens to be into the footwear and tire end of things because I think there are less examiners out there able to to do that kind of work. Sure,
1: yeah, for sure
0: just quick question before we get into your research alicia uh how, how long um did uh did it take for you to become convinced that uh that the fingerprints are unique
2: <laughs> the i have to say the royal canadian mounted police did that for me i was, ah, okay. I, I was indoctrinated out the, the uh, north of the border uh and I still like the term unique. I know that's sometimes considered now a dirty word. I, I'm probably, I don't feel old, but I guess I'm old school. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I'm having a big birthday this summer. But I'm, so, uh, yeah, I suppose after looking at so many and seeing how much is enough, uh, I definitely in the early days didn't like the, the, I th- thought it was kind of unfair how DNA had a sort of a criteria and a rule book to follow and they knew when something was enough to call it an association and they had a statistical number I felt, and they got paid more than us uh, at, you know, <laughs> as a print examiner right. uh, where well, we were left sort of heading off to court sweating to describe uh, the, the long sentence that there was uh, sufficient uri- unique rich detail in sequence to individualize Uh, And then it just, it was, yeah, you know it when you see it type thing and having to explain that. Luckily back then, nobody ever asked. We were, (laughs) it was was a given. And I think when we talk about my research in in a minute, it's still, we're still, uh, you know, have the golden egg in the jurors' minds. I'm fully convinced. I say, bring it on. Let's have all these uh, statistics and other numbers. But I think they're just going to be, just going to support what we already know.
1: Fantastic, and, and a perfect segue into your research. I, I assume this was your PhD thesis, but you want to take it further now that that's all done.
2: Yes, so I had to think up a research project. That my boss at Huston University gave me a year to, to do so. So I, for many months, didn't do anything, and I was really annoyed. The thought of having to do a PhD forced upon me, against my will, So I thought of different things that I could research and I'm like, nah, it was a good time for me to change careers. I, I think I was getting slightly burnt out without maybe even knowing it. So I went back to the NAS report and I read through and the part that jumped out at me that I felt this is really a really key part is how do the jurors interpret us when we go to Testify, right. and they had indicated there was a there was a gap in the literature. So I did um, quite an extensive literature search prior to proposing this idea to my uh, supervisor, Nieve Nick Dade. She was at Strathclyde at the time, and she moved to the University of Dundee halfway through my PhD, and I moved with her. So I said to her, what about this idea of how do the jurors interpret forensic science testimony? And it wasn't within a subject area that she had worked. She does a lot of research on fires and arsons, and she has um, assisted other students with footwear uh, research and PhDs, but she was very interested. She thought this was a great idea, and she said she would get a team together and we would that 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 was something we could work with and that actually of all of the other projects I thought it was the only one I was kind of excited about so if there's anyone out there listening thinking that they might like to go on and do something like a PhD it's important to pick something that there's a gap number one but something that you feel passionate about now and you think you'll be passionate about after typing four or 500 pages
1: (laughs) and and my
2: colleagues have told my colleagues have also told me it's 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 going to be your thing it's if it works out it could be your career path so it's going to be your baby for for a long time if you want to keep it so it, I was so glad to have a whole year. You do need a lot of time. And I was very fortunate to be able to choose my topic. Some people are, have to do a research project based on what their PhD supervisor wants. Um, that wouldn't have, got, wouldn't have really suited me. I was coming back to school, you know, in my late 20s. When was it? In my early 30s. So I was, had a kind of an independent mind. And it was nice that I was able to pick my own project.
1: Yeah, that's very true, especially in the chemistry world where I sort of grew up academically. You know, it really is the interests and passions of your professor who wants these patents. But it's nice in the forensic science world that you really it's so wide open. There's so many things that need to be researched that uh, you you can, you know, pick your poison and pick something that uh, that you're passionate about, as you said.
2: So I was lucky to be able to pick a project that I was passionate about and that I was able to sustain that passion over over the course of the PhD, which took me about five years. In the United Kingdom, they do no coursework. The US, a lot of the doctoral degrees, a lot of classes. Uh, University of Dundee does no classes and they have, you have to meet two criteria. You have to make a um, significant contribution to the field. So if I was to find that through my research that this particular methodology didn't work and I came up with no results, I don't think I could have passed. So you have to make a positive contribution to have something that you leave behind for the community. That was a bit of a worry as I went through. I'm like, What happens if this doesn't work? So uh, I had a lot of questions and my dissertation answered a lot, a lot of them. I still have data that I haven't gone back to to analyze but I asked the jurors questions like their demographic information just to get some age and race and political standing Uh, things that had jumped out to me in the literature that would seem to sway jurors one way or the other I asked jurors about their education their highest level of education uh, their highest level of a science class did they get a university science class? How many of those had they taken? How long ago was that?
0: So um, the, the 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 jurors here are the where, where are these uh, jurors uh, from? Is this people in Maine or back in the UK?
2: That's a good question. I should probably start from there. The jurors I used for this research were Maine jurors, so they were jurors that sat. And presided over homicide trials and there, the oh,
0: okay. research
2: covers nine homicide trials. And the reason I chose homicide trials was just because in Maine they're what much more easy to figure out when they're going to be. There's a homicide schedule. There's a victim witness advocate that I could access and ask him or her what day of the week are the are the experts going to testify. So, to give you an idea, the, the research kind of took three prongs. I I did surveys with them, I did telephone interviews with the jurors, and I also went to the trials and watched the expert witnesses and took notes. So it's not just them telling me something was inf- influential in their decision making. When I was in the trial watching the expert witness, I could I had a sense of if the testimony. Of the person gave a weak association, was inconclusive, gave a strong association, how they testified, the, the way the expert testified. So it had that dimension to it as well. So these were nine homicide trials over a series of two years. And jurors in Maine, like many states, are a population that you don't normally have access to. So the chief justice in Maine gave wrote a judicial order And gave me access to the jurors for 12 months and then extended it on for another 12 months. And with that process, I had to come up with the survey questions that I mailed um, paper format. And then those were locked in. The the judge had to, the chief justice had to confirm that those were okay from his perspective. He was a bit concerned with post-conviction and the data I was collecting being brought up after conviction. And then the same thing with the phone interviews, that the questions, they were open-ended, that I had supplied them to him and he agreed. Those were the questions I could ask. I could clarify if jurors were confused, but I wasn't to ask anything additional outside of that. So there were some constraints on the qualitative and quantitative approach in the research. uh,
1: Let me ask a question here. I mean, there's no way these jurors could have impacted the post-conviction unless you found something out about their deliberations, right? I mean, and then you would have had to have revealed that to the judge because they're not involved in the post-conviction in any way.
2: No. So that was the actual main constraint was I would have liked to ask more questions about the deliberation process. But I was only allowed to ask one. And the one question I asked was, did, well, it was a follow up question. Was there any of the forensic science evidence that you maybe didn't understand? And they may answer yes or no there. And then my follow up question, which touched on deliberations asked, did the deliberation process help clarify that question? So that was the main limitation. But yeah, when I'm pu- when I'm publishing this, I'm cautious on some of the terms and the the specifics that I've stripped most of the data. I think people from the crime lab might know which trial some of the jurors were talking about, so I've done my best to strip sure. out. If the juror said said the word knife, I have weapon. So I've edited it a little bit just to keep the anonymity okay. there
0: so uh uh what was like the most common or or how did the uh, the experts in those trials how did those break down were there a lot of latent prints, mostly DNA uh, what kind of um, scientific evidence was presented to these jurors?
2: so the trials like, like some homicide trials in maine are very forensic heavy like like anywhere else, and some maybe less so uh, I think of Domestic violence related homicides. There's forensic testimony. Often it doesn't help much. The fingerprints or the DNA might not mean so much. So these were strong forensic uh, science cases. So the evidence presented at the at the trial was likely to have a big impact on the decision making. Yeah, there were latent print examiners, physical fracture match examiners, DNA examiners, trace. Uh, firearms examiner. So depending on the case, are some fire debris examiners, medical medical examiners. So depending on the, the type of homicide, there was probably a DNA examiner at all of the trials and a high percentage of the trials had a latent print examiner as well.
1: What, was that a criterion that you had to have a forensic science of some sort involved in the trial?
2: Yes. So I wanted the research to come back so I didn't follow all homicides during this period of time. And there was one homicide way up in Northern Maine. I didn't follow that one because I couldn't get up to it. So it was sort of a, a convenience sample. I Trials that I could go to and watch or two of the nine I got transcripts for. Uh, so I went and watched seven. I got tra- transcripts of the other two and I wanted to be able to see, or at least read, the trial transcript to judge. One of the questions I was trying to figure out: Do the jurors put the correct weight on the evidence uh, when they hear Mm -hmm. it? Are they are they using central or peripheral processing, or what? What 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 causes the jurors to find a particular expert credible? And how do they know if evidence is reliable? And do they use do they use the evidence? I think is pretty strong presented at the trial to, to, to guide them to come to a decision. And I didn't say earlier, but these were all um, convictions. And the defendants in the case were all male. That just happens to be the trials that, that I went to.
1: But at the time, you wouldn't have known that they would have resulted in convictions. Eh, no. Because they were obviously mm-hmm. ongoing. Yes. Uh, the, I, the I think the other thing I have for you is, did you sit through all the other evidence you know the investigators and that or did you limit yourself to just the forensic testimony
2: mostly just the forensic testimony due to time considerations I'm working full-time as an assistant professor so I couldn't the homicide trials generally go for one to two weeks and sometimes into the third week so I couldn't take three weeks off and watch the whole thing so I realized maybe seeing the whole trial give me some more information or closing arguments and things like that so I only watched the what i would call forensic scientists the typical when we think of a forensic scientist those but given that i did see some other witnesses in in between and at the beginning and the end i saw some other witnesses mm-hmm. that weren't forensic scientists but the note, notes i took on my focus was It was it was interesting because when we go to watch trials or we're learning how to be good expert witness, we're encouraged to go to watch our peers and you're going to watch your peer, how he or she phrases things and answers questions. But I was able to look at the jurors as well. So I didn't necessarily need to look at the expert witness. I took notes, but I was able to watch the jurors faces and, and, and how they were reacting to the testimony.
1: Yeah, I'm 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 curious here because in my very rudimentary conversations with lay people and jurors and mock jurors I'm always surprised at how much the other information is so important to their deliberation that it's not just the forensic evidence alone, in fact just the forensic evidence alone doesn't mean that much to them. It seems like they need the story or the context to do something with that forensic evidence, that just a single fingerprint ID in you know, in a burglary, in a home, even in a place where the person has no legitimate access, they need the other things to seem to make sense of that forensic. Is that something that you found in your interviews? How, how did they incorporate that forensic evidence into their decision-making?
2: That's definitely true, Glenn, and you know this term. It's called a story model of jurors. Uh, processing information. Prior to me starting this research, I didn't know what that was. But the story model just states that, that jurors don't come into the into the trial uh, as a blank canvas. They have some idea of what is forensic evidence. They may have read an article. They may have seen something on TV or in the news. So they come in with some prior understanding, whether it's accurate or not. Then they hear the trial presented to them, the Attorney general uh, presents the case. Uh, to not every piece of evidence is presented, not every interview is discussed. So the attorney then presents what they think is enough to give the jurors enough facts to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So what happens in these cases with evidence? If if the evidence fits within a story and within the story that the attorney is presenting, there are gaps. And the sort of subconscious to the juror, they fill the gaps with the most plausible explanation. So if there's a gap, mm. how did Mr. X get from point A to point B? Well, they might think, well, that's, you couldn't really walk that distance, must have driven, maybe got an Uber. So they'll pl- place something in that gap that makes sense to them. So they'll fill in fill in the gaps. And what happens then with evidence that fills, falls within this constructed story so the story is constructed through the information the attorney gave and also filling in gaps by themselves then the cigarette butt with the dna found maybe along the path for the person walked fits in and then weight can be put on it so evidence that's kind of obscure like a single fingerprint on you know a candy wrapper that could have blown in the wind. Not really quite sure about that. How does that fit? Everybody said Mm -hmm. that the defendant was a diabetic. He wouldn't eat candy. Then now suddenly where we think, well, there was a fingerprint right at the crime scene, the defendant's fingerprint, that doesn't fit within the story and can become increasingly devalued by the jurors. Um, I have a few examples, if you'd like me to just give you a few. On this one, I'm going to read from a, from a slide here. So there was a woman, and I gave them all um, pseudonyms. Her name was Anne. Anne and Amy, I'm going to tell you about them. They're both from the same trial. So if they have the same first initial, they were from the same trial. So in response to the question, how do jurors know the importance of evidence presented at the trial, Anne said, I guess that other pieces of evidence collaborate with that piece In other words, it's not just a standalone piece, but other parts affirm that that piece is is credible evidence. It's not just that one piece standing out, but they're all sort of supporting each other. So that's really a a layman's definition of the story model, that it fits within all the other pieces. Amy said, I had to start start trying to figure out a timeline and figuring out where they were and where was this and does this make sense and does that fit here so that was how she figured out that evidence in that case if they fit together made logical sense to her then she was able to put weight on them
0: hmm.
1: yeah that's pretty fat I mean it, it it's, it's so shocking to me that it's so simple and so obvious and yet it goes counterintuitive to what I might think as a forensic scientist that you've got this evidence that has some likelihood ratio, some weight, some mathematical component to it, but it doesn't matter if there isn't a story to go with it. And we never present that story. We only see from our perspective, the connection, the weight of the evidence, the association, but without that story or those other pieces, you know, not just the fingerprint, but why wasn't there also DNA on the gun? If you have the person's DNA, or at least they can't be excluded, and their fingerprint on the gun, then that makes both those pieces more powerful and believable.
2: Definitely. And we could keep that in mind as we're analyzing things or explaining the fact that the DNA wasn't on the gun doesn't necessarily mean the person didn't touch it. To take the time to explain that, Research has shown that you know guns mm. could be touched, and depending on somebody's skin and sweating, they may remain. Or, or DNA could be rubbed off. So the old absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. To to you, it would be worth maybe going a little further and helping the helping the jurors. One of the jurors as well uh, with this one particular case where there was um, a female murder victim and a male defendant at. Uh, the, the defendant had moved the victim's clothes from the scene of where her body was found to another location near where she was abducted uh, and the jurors really couldn't understand why did he move the clothes and they were caught up well, the clothes have very little to do with the crime there was a lot of other evidence connecting him to the body um, but the jurors are really caught up on that part that that did not make sense and they spent a lot of time in the deliberation process trying to figure out why he would have done that
0: Hmm, interesting. Interesting.
1: (laughs) Do you you think that it's crazy in the American jurisprudence system that relies on these jurors that we don't allow them to ask questions as long as the questions are legal? You know, they're not asking about criminal history or background or things like that. But when they need clarification questions, why we don't allow them to ask those questions other than grand juries or a few bizarre exceptions.
2: Arizona Arizona. allows it. That's a lot of Arizona. Really cool research has come from Arizona. They even, in some cases, video recorded the, the deliberation process, or they read the notes the jurors had asked, the things. Yeah, it's, oh. it's great. Well, I went into the research. I have to say, when I went to testify, and I'd see people with, you know, torn jeans and disheveled, and I was really dissatisfied.
1: You're just talking about the forensic scientists. Yes. Yeah, so right? as I was
2: testifying. <laughs> In May, yeah, it's me. and I'd look in and say the a 12 member jury, a jury of your peers. I was sort of a bit sarcastic about the whole thing, thinking to myself, These are not my <laughs> peers, who are these people? Uh, I had the idea that the people who come to trial are possibly unemployed people, and who, who you know, the only people that are there are people that I probably know are better to be. So, I have to well, talk about researcher bias. I went into it like that, and I left the research thinking. I think it's a great system. I really feel strongly that I don't think questions need to be asked. I think it would help. It certainly would clarify things. But the process is very strong and it's very robust. And the jurors did a phenomenal job. I agreed with them with what they said to me on the phone. And they didn't know I was a forensic scientist. They thought I was an academic person from the university. They didn't know my previous role. So and I didn't tell them. So they explained certain parts about why fingerprints were permanent and unique, and I just listened to them on the phone. (laughs) They tried to teach me, uh, tried me
0: a little bit. So yeah, I I thought that was
2: uh, probably a good idea not to tell them that I knew the people testifying or that I knew anything about about the science. Going back to your other question, we, we mentioned earlier about just the source of the DNA, when we would say the source, I've heard, you know, over the past few years people are talking more about activity level. And I think that's something as a latent print examiner yes. or the other forensic sciences, that there's two schools of thought people think, oh, we can only testify to the source and give a statistical value or, or a narrative narrative uh, description of our association. But I do feel that that's an unexplored area. I'm thinking of footwear and tires and and fingerprints and simultaneous impressions and directionality and all these other parts that that we sometimes see and have in our mind, but we don't put them in our report. I I think that's something that we could maybe another area of of, uh, future research.
0: Yeah, uh, thinking back in, in Arizona, there was there was one uh, investigator that would routinely, um, you know, call up because our reports just listed off that these, this number of identifications were made um, and what the, what the lift was Mm -hmm. labeled as, you know, um, but, um, you know, he would call and ask specifically about the finger number and, you know, trying to get a better idea of the location because uh, he was uh, trying to to do that, I think most of his cases involved um, auto theft. Uh, so you know he was looking for, um, you know, was this person trying to to push in the the you know the side window to to gain entry, and you know which fingers were used, and and then going back and looking at the position for that. But it it is rare for. Um, for print examiners, and especially for, I think, uh, you know, actual detectives or investigators to to be looking at that level. Yeah, I
2: think so too. I've started to do a little bit of my consulting work, so I think the reports that you are describing were very similar to the ones I wrote when I was at the main state police crime lab. They just would specify a fingerprint was found on the car, maybe on the driver's door. Uh, but what I am doing in my consulting company now is I am doing diagrams and photographs in my report embedded. Just to show with arrows and locations that these were in the upward position, uh, to help to help people kind of get a better sense of well these fingerprints are really important or not so important because because the, of their location. That I would have that in my mind. I know it going to court. I might even testify to it if somebody asked. Could the person have placed these fingerprints by turning their hand upside down? And you and I would say no. But that's never. It might not even be in our notes. It's maybe visually documented in a photo but it's not in our report. And sometimes it can be important and we might not know till later, but we probably shouldn't be testifying to significant things. If it's not in our report.
1: I agree with you hundred percent there.
0: Uh, All right, Glenn, uh, let's take a break here real quick. Uh, We're in the middle of our interview with Alicia Wilcox, but we're going to break the episode here and, uh, and come back uh, next week with the second half. Uh, Anything you want to mention here?
1: Yeah, and, and I'm just – I'm loving this interview. There's so much good information. It's yeah, just yeah. – we don't, we don't want to stop it here, but we, we, want to, we want to make sure we get all of it in. So, yeah, this is definitely a two-parter. Uh, yeah, I thought I would just throw out that uh, I do have a class uh, coming up, although what's interesting about this, it's in Canada. So I know oh. we might not get a lot of U.S. students to, to be able to go, but we have so many Canadian listeners that I wanted to throw this out. I'm always amazed at the number of Canadian uh, emails we get and the Canadian students yeah. that are listening. So it's I really wanted to uh, make sure if they weren't aware already. Uh, and they can go to ronsmithandassociates.com. And th- at that website, uh, they can look at the training courses available. But I'm teaching in Calgary, November 12th. Through the sixteenth, and it is the Advanced ACEV course. So it's the course that goes into documentation and deconstructs the ACEV methodology, looks at um, you know the limits and the strengths of it, the research supporting ACEV, and really just digs in and tries to answer what is ACEV. Uh, how does it serve us well and how, you know, where are the areas of concern or limitations that we have to be aware of and how do we shore that up in our testimony? So I love that. I love teaching that class and the, I just love going to the home of ASB in Canada (laughs) to teach that.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, So, all right. Well um, again, we'll see you guys all next week or Talk to you guys all next week with more of the Alicia Wilcox interview. In the meantime, you can email Glenn or I, Glenn at com or Eric at com. And uh, remember, our, our opinions are our own. But uh, please give us your opinion, those five-star ratings on iTunes or, or whatever podcast thing you use uh, that you to listen to us on. Um, and uh, consider going over to Patreon and uh, seeing if you can send a couple bucks our way to help us keep things going. Uh, or a couple the, of
1: loonies uh, and toonies.
0: Yeah, there you go. That works, too. Um, uh, to keep the lights on. Maybe, maybe one of those uh, those fibers with the kids playing hockey on the Becky. Um,
1: uh, <laughs> it's hockey. It's hockey, eh?
0: oh, Okay, sorry, sorry. Um, uh, anyway, uh, okay. enough clowning around. Uh, I'll talk to you guys next week.
1: Bye, everybody. Have a good week.